Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes. We're going to be looking at the end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, uh, but I'm going to read it a little bit out of order, and I trust that the reason will make sense uh, as we go. So we're going to start with chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. If you're using uh, one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that starting uh, on page 558-559, starting with uh, the first 13 verses of chapter 10. Beloved saints, uh, this is God's Word. It is precious, it is eternal, It's here for our instruction and our comfort that we might know him. Please give your attention to the reading of it. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an heir proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walk on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and the one and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. Uh, This ends the reading of God's word at this point. Let us pray that he would be pleased to speak to us through it. As high as the heavens are higher than the earth, O God, so are your ways higher than ours, and your thoughts higher than ours. We are here because we want to know you, we want to know your truth, we want to know your ways, and so we ask that you would teach them to us that you would guide us in them, that you would teach us to know and to seek after you with all of our heart, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. And we ask that you would do this even as we draw near to you in your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Ecclesiastes, and we get to return uh, to it today. We've been on quite a journey Uh, as we've looked uh, through the first uh, nine chapters or so, we've covered a fair amount of ground. And I said at the beginning that Solomon was going to take us on a trip, on a journey, and one of discovery, that he had something to say. But rather than simply share the conclusions, he, he kind of wanted to rehearse his own journey and take us on it that we might discover with him what he has discovered. He wanted to show us the reasons, not just the conclusions. And really, his message revolves around the the struggle with the shortness of life. Life, he says, is vanity of vanities. But that word 
that little word translated vanity is really just the word breath. Life is but a breath. Or better, a breath of breaths. So short in the grand scheme of eternity. It's short, it appears for a while, and then it's gone. And we struggle with this. We struggle with what Solomon struggles with. And Ecclesiastes is wrestling with this idea for us and with us. Where is meaning to be found when life is so short? How do you make that life count? That's the great question. And Solomon began with honest reflections on his frustrations. He believed that meaning in life was found in achieving, beating the shortness of it, achieving immortality, not by necessarily beating death, but at least by doing something so new, so novel, so different that he would live on forever in the memories of others. And to do that, he would have to, he would have to do something that couldn't be forgotten, something life and world-changing. He would have to make his short life, extraordinary. And I think we can all empathize with him. None of us wants to be forgotten when we're gone. We all want to be thought of as amazing, extraordinary, unique. But realizing that he could not achieve immortality, in chapter 2, he turned to the issue of pleasure. If I can't find significance in changing the world, I will drown myself in pleasure. I will numb myself to my pains and my struggles. But he realized that he couldn't. There had to be more to life than simple pleasure. He couldn't escape the seasons of life. There were going to be hard seasons that he could not hide from, ignore. And they had to have reason and they had to have meaning. Pleasure was not the ultimate solution. Eventually, as we drew into chapters 5 and following, or at least chapter 4, he saw that the only way forward was, was to accept that life is short, that it is brief, and to ask, what are we meant to do with it while we have it? And he has given us several answers Uh, In chapter 4, he told us it's meant to be shared with others. We are not meant to be alone. We are meant to have relationships. And there's a whole host of kinds of relationships, marriage, friends, alliances, church, community, that we have to be involved in other people's lives. We cannot isolate ourselves. It's meant, in chapter 5, he told us to be lived in worship to the true God, that life only finds meaning and significance when it is oriented around and directed toward the one true God. And then he goes on through, through the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 to basically say anything else will leave you feeling empty, isolated, and alone. In our past two sections, chapters 8 and 9, we've seen that much of life is really about learning to surrender. We saw in chapter 9 that we we tend to think of ourselves either as victims or villains. We tend to fall into the trap of thinking that it is our job to fix all the evils in this world 
and that God is just depending upon us that, to, to figure out how to make everything right. But such a view we saw fails to recognize, as chapter 8 told us, that God allows suffering because he is patient and he's giving us time to repent and he's even using that suffering to humble us and lead us to repentance. Today, as we continue on chapter 9 and 10, we want to ask and continue to ask, how does God call us to live in this world? Specifically, we want to look at the ways of wisdom and folly and what each accomplishes. And my hope as we look at this longer section this morning is to see that wisdom is a thankless and arduous pursuit. That's a big word for hard. But its end is life. Wisdom is thankless. It is hard, but it leads to life. That's really what this passage is about. It begins and it ends with wisdom, but in the middle it starts by looking at foolishness or folly and what it brings, namely death. That's why I want to start here in chapter 10. Then we're going to go back and look at the end of chapter 9 and see that wisdom brings life. And then finally, we want to look at a few examples of what wisdom can and should look like in your life and my life uh, while we have these, this time on earth. That's where we're headed today. But like I said, I want to start with chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, and its description of folly or foolishness. One of the things it says, and this comes as a shock to no one, is that foolishness is everywhere, verses 5 and 7. There is no shortage of foolishness in this world. There are foolish kings and world leaders. Wisdom and folly are no respecters of bank accounts or position. Being born into a solid, influential family is no guarantee of wisdom. History is filled with stories of foolish leaders. And folly makes everything harder and more dangerous. In verses 8 through 11, he he illustrates this with a number uh, of mostly mundane tasks. Digging a pit can be your undoing if you're not careful. Knocking down a wall can be your death if you don't know what's on the other side. Quarrying stones, splitting logs, mundane tasks can be the end of you. And folly, foolishness, makes all of these and all of life harder. (laughs) If you don't sharpen your axe before you start splitting wood, you will have to work two or three times as hard just to get the same amount of work done. It doesn't matter if you know how to charm snakes. If you don't do it in time, it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have. Wisdom says, do not get too close to the serpent before it is charmed. He doesn't care what your credentials are. All of these are simple ways of saying that wisdom is needed every day and folly will not only make your life harder, it may very well likely make your life shorter. And so the section ends in verse 13 with a summary of the life of folly. It ends in madness. A life that is governed by folly ends in ruin. Folly destroys Foolish people are always around us and they always ask the same question, why is my life so hard? 
And these are two things that, that life is, is uh, that folly destroys and that, that folly is everywhere are, should scare us. And there are two other things that, that should terrify us uh, in this section and its description of folly. Look at verse 1. It only takes a little bit to ruin everything. And this is where folly is unique. We're going to talk about folly and wisdom. Foolishness and wisdom. And and our tendency is to sometimes think that they're just mere uh, uh, extremes. They're opposites. What can be said about one can be said about the other and the opposite. But this is where folly is unique. It takes a mountain of wisdom to produce a good result. But folly can destroy everything with the smallest drop. In this way, the two are not equals on opposite ends of the spectrum. It can take a lifetime of careful planning and discipline to save up for retirement, but it only takes one foolish afternoon to lose it all. Just like the smallest drop of poison can render an entire well lethal, so a small amount of folly can outweigh a lifetime of wisdom and honor, verse 1. The second thing that should terrify us is that folly cannot be hidden. And that's what verse 3 is about. Fools announce their folly through their lives. As they walk down the road, it's as if they have a bullhorn or a sandwich board that says, I'm a fool. And so this is, this is the, the gravestone, the epithet of folly. It destroys, it only takes a little, and it can't be hidden. Destroys, it only takes a little, and it can't be hidden. And we can see all of these realities embodied in the life of Adam in the Garden of Eden. He was given a, a, a beautiful environment, a context in which to live. His life was not hard. There was work to do, but it was not arduous. It was, it was very doable. And all he had to do was, was walk the path that God had set before him. But the, but the voice of folly broke through the walls of the garden in the form of a serpent. Adam had the tools he needed to tame that serpent, didn't he? The word of God would have brought that serpent into submission. But he did not use those tools, and he let the serpent get too close. The Lord had promised a feast to Adam if he would obey, that he would eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he would only do his job, he would be, uh, sorry, the tree of life, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but he would eat from the tree of life if he had obeyed. But Adam didn't want to wait for that feast. He wanted the easy way. He didn't want to wait till the work was done. And so he he took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit before its time, and he had a feast to which he was not entitled. This is what Adam is now known for, isn't it? Not every right decision he made, but for the wrong one. Whatever whatever good he did, whatever wisdom he showed, it has all been forgotten 
Because a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. One simple act, one little decision brought everything crashing down and it brought death, not just for himself, but for all mankind. And Adam was a ruler in creation. He was given dominion over all things, but he was a foolish leader. As that leader, he was acting for all of us, and so we all paid the price for his folly. He made life infinitely harder, and since that time, we have been chopping wood with a dull axe. We struggle, and we struggle, and we struggle just to accomplish a fraction of what would have been done with little effort had Adam not chosen so foolishly. Adam embodies the reality that folly destroys, makes life harder, and brings madness. It's against that reality that our passage describes wisdom and its effects. And that's what Solomon introduces in the, in the final part of chapter 9. And that, so let's go back and read that. Chapter 9, verses 13 through 19. Or uh, yeah, uh, through 18, I'm sorry. He says this, verse 13, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The word of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. He tells this parable of a little city that comes under attack by a great and powerful king. Totally surrounded, cut off from all supplies and all help, alone and outnumbered, They were not going to fight their way out. Brute strength was not going to be their hope. But in that city was a poor man, though he was wise. And by his wisdom, he delivered the city. By his wisdom, he saved not only himself, but all his fellow citizens and neighbors. Wisdom gives life. Just as folly destroys and brings death, wisdom gives life. But notice what it doesn't give. Look at the end of verse 15. Yet no one remembered that poor man. Isn't that typical? He wasn't an important member of society. He was poor, probably a laborer, hard worker. He had no status. He had no celebrity. And so his wisdom was welcomed as long as it could save everyone's life. But once life was back to normal and there was no threat from that foreign king, well, then it's just back to life as normal, back to entertainment, back to fawning over the rich and the famous, back to the ways that left them vulnerable in the first place because people don't learn their lessons. Did they exalt the one who saved them? Did they say he would be a better king and ruler? 
Who cares if he's poor or doesn't come from a known family? Or did they sideline him and return their loyalty to the king who was unable to deliver them when it really mattered? How many times have we witnessed such foolishness in our lives, in our surroundings, and in our own hearts? How typical is this? It's madness. How many times do do we see where our foolishness leads, cry out for mercy and deliverance, only to receive it, and as soon as things get comfortable, what do we do again? It's easy to throw stones at the little town in this parable until we realize we are that little town. How many times do we return to our sin like a dog to its vomit? But in verses 16 through 18, Solomon goes on and describes the power of wisdom. It's not in its brute strength, but it is better than weapons of war. It's more powerful than the shouting of rulers among fools. Even though it is despised and maligned and mocked and forgotten, it is better than folly. Wise words spoken in private are beautiful and they are productive. If you seek fame and popularity, you will never be satisfied with wisdom. You will run from it. And its power will do you no good. Because wisdom's goal in your life is not to make you popular. And it is not to make you rich. It is to give you life. Its hope for you is to help you avoid destruction, not get on TV. It forces you to decide what is more important, life or fame, truth or sound bites, peace or adventure. And if you want fame and sound bites and adventure, you will run from wisdom because it is not there to give you it. And just as folly was embodied in the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, wisdom is embodied in one man and one man alone, Jesus Christ. When the God of wisdom came into this world, he did not come to a rich, powerful, noble, well-known royal family. He was born poor. He was relatively unknown through most of his life. Not even my name. Isn't he the carpenter's son? From his earliest days, he was recognized, though, for possessing a wisdom that was beyond others, confounding the teachers in the synagogues and the temple. He spoke largely in private, confounding his brothers who would say to him, anybody who, who wants to be known doesn't hide in private but goes out into public. And Jesus says, I'm not here to be popular. This world cannot love me because I'm not of it. He didn't seek riches. He didn't seek political power. And where Adam gave into the seduction of the serpent, Jesus chose instead not to let him too close, but to rebuff him, to tame him with the word of God. 
And so with every lie that the serpent came, Jesus spoke the word of God back to him and didn't let him get too close. He patiently lived moment by moment on the road of truth, the way of wisdom. He did not depart depart from it one step, either to the right or to the left, because he knew that a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. One small misstep would have ruined everything. He could not have sat there and said, well, that's just one small thing and a mountain of righteousness. He had to be perfect. He lived a life of perfect obedience and faithfulness because that is what wisdom requires. Moment by moment, step by step, wisdom is focused not on the pleasure of the moment, but on the end goal, the big picture. And so he lived a perfect life without one sin, not even one tiny little sin in thought, word, or deed, because that would have been his undoing and ours. Because he was not just acting on his own behalf. Like the poor man in Solomon's parable, he was seeking to save a people. He came to live the life that we could not. So he could bring life to us. And that would also require that he pay the price for our folly. And we know what folly brings. It brings destruction. It brings death. Our foolishness, our sin deserves death. And so if he would bring us life, he would have to remove the consequences of our foolish sin and die the death we deserve. Allow himself to be destroyed. He would not only have to live a perfect life, he would have to die a horrific death. And if he didn't, our lives would be forfeited to a powerful king hell-bent on our destruction, the prince of this world. This is the gospel message. This is the message of Christianity right here. We have found life, eternal life, not in our own wisdom and obedience, not in some earthly ruler or king, not in some wealthy or influential philanthropist, but in a poor nobody born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and killed in Jerusalem. That's our hope. Such such a message is absolute folly and madness to this world. But to us, it is the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. Did you hear that passage that Brian read to us in, in the Declaration of Pardon? You might have missed exactly how Paul says it, but it's beautiful. He says, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He became, not just embodied, not just possessed, he is the wisdom of God and therefore our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. He embodies it. He is the wisdom of God. He is the giver of life. He is the one of whom Solomon was truly speaking all those years ago who saved a people by his wisdom. Just because he is our wisdom in our life doesn't mean we don't need to walk in wisdom. The temptation, the foolish temptation, 
is to say, oh, he's my wisdom. doesn't matter what I do. And that's not it at all. Indeed, if he is the wisdom of God, to walk in him is to walk in wisdom. This is the call of every person who calls themselves a Christian, a follower of Jesus. It is to follow wisdom. Ecclesiastes 10.2 says, a wise, man heart, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now, this is not some statement about political leanings. It is not. It is simply saying that wisdom and folly will pull you in two opposite directions. Period. A wise heart will lead you in the dead opposite direction as a foolish heart. So let's spend some time, the time remaining, asking what wisdom looks like for us while we are in this world. Let's read the final verses, verses 14 through 20 of chapter 10. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and when your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, on, or some unwinged creature tell the matter. At the center of this section is a comparison between two types of leaders. One that feasts in the morning and one that feasts at the proper time. The image of the first ruler is one who wakes up probably late and immediately begins to party. He uses his position to bathe himself and his friends with indulgence. He never sees to his responsibilities because he's too busy stuffing his face But here's the thing. A normal meal is meant to be had early to give you strength to go out and do something. A feast is meant to be done when all the work is done, whether that's a battle or a project or whatever. A feast is when you bask in the completion of what you were called to do and you enjoy the finished product. But what happens when you have a feast at the wrong time? That's what verse 18 is about. The mundane things like life go undone, like home maintenance. Your ceiling begins to sag and then leak. Now, this is, of course, a metaphor, but in case you'd like to help fix our leaning roof out front, talk to Dave Stodema. We have one that will be leaking if we don't fix it. We have responsibilities. But it's a metaphor for far more, isn't it? It's a metaphor for your life descending into chaos and disrepair for lack of attention, lack of discipline. 
Again, how many people do you know who neglect their responsibilities and then they wonder why their life is so hard? What God is saying is is that the fool focuses on what is fun and pleasant to the neglect of what is right and necessary. The book of Ecclesiastes has told us to enjoy bread and wine with joy and laughter. But here it's making sure that we understand that we are to enjoy those as a reward when the work is done, not as a call to a debauched life. The other piece of advice for what it means to walk in the way of wisdom is found in verses 14 and 20. And basically it says, learn to close your mouth. A fool multiplies words, verse 14. Proverbs says it this way, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. For some reason... We all, me me included, struggle to learn when to stop talking. How many of our problems in life would have been avoided if we just remained silent? We start blabbering away about things we don't really understand because we want to be thought wise. And yet we just prove the opposite. Proverbs says this, maybe even more to the point. Even when a fool keeps silent, he's considered wise. Because those careless words always come back to bite you. Time and time again, people have learned this painful painful lesson. Nothing is truly private. And this was written before Facebook. Things come back and bite you. You say something to someone thinking it is fun behind closed doors that you're just letting off steam and the next thing you know you're being asked about it and you feel as naked as Adam and Eve before those all-knowing eyes of God and all you've got to cover you is this fig leaf and you think, I'm naked. I'm known. I'm exposed. I'm a fool. We need to learn to curb our tongues. And that, of course, has to start by learning to train our thoughts. Spend your time cursing the king in your mind and it will eventually find its way to your lips. And some bird will whisper it to those in power. This is the lesson the foolish struggle to learn. They want to shoot off their mouths and then they feel like a victim when those words come back to bite them. The wise learn that if they bridle their tongue, they won't have any explaining to do. One of the hardest things you will ever have to say in your life is nothing. But it is the soundtrack for the road trip on the way of wisdom. The Lord has made it clear that when the work is done, it is then time to feast. And so when our Lord had lived a good life, when he had stood silent before his accusers, 
when he had suffered and died in our place, he shared a feast with his disciples and he commanded them to receive it and observe it until he returned because it is a testimony to them and to us that he has completed all that was required of him to do, that his work is finished. He worked first and then he feasted because he is a good king, a wise ruler, a saver of his people. And so we, by feasting on the first day of the week, and I love this, this is beautiful, we confess that anything good we do flows out of his completed work. We don't feast at the end of the week. We feast at the beginning because Jesus has already accomplished everything for us. And then we, out of that work, out of that wisdom, out of that goodness, walk forward in wisdom because we walk forward in Christ who is the wisdom of God. In him, we can even in this life start walking in wisdom. We can learn to hold our tongues We can do what the Lord has called us to and then rest and next week enjoy a feast with him again. And we can do this confident that our time on earth is short and that while we are here, the Lord has called us to honor him and that one day our time on this earth will be done and this meal will be replaced with the greatest feast history will ever know, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because all will be truly done, not just redemption accomplished, but it will be fully applied. History will draw to a close and we will be with our wise king in his heavenly banquet halls for all eternity. And we will all raise a glass and say, it is finished. It is good. It is wise. And it is life. Until then, we rest in him who is our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Indeed, he who is the very wisdom of God. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this feast, that we might proclaim Christ's finished work. Please join me in prayer. Our only wise God, we thank you that you have not left us in our folly, but you have called us out to bask in your wisdom and grace. We know, Father, that the cross is foolishness to this world, but to us who are being saved, it is the very wisdom of heaven. Teach us to walk in your wisdom, to do all things in their appointed time, to learn when to speak and when to remain silent. All this we ask in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we have life. Amen.